0: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, a host on the Intellectual History Channel, and tonight it's a special honor to be joined by the political economist Thomas Piketty, a professor at the Paris School of Economics and co director of the World Inequality Lab and Database. Professor Piketty has been publishing research on political economy for well over a quarter century. Listeners, though, will be more familiar with his best selling 2014 book. Capital in the 21st Century, which laid out the rolling back of New Deal social democracy and capital's triumph over government regulation and taxation. This was followed by his 2020 publication, Capital and Ideology, which expanded his research's geopolitical reach. He joins us now from Paris to talk about his latest book, A Brief History of Equality, published this month by Harvard University Press. Professor Piketty, Thomas, thanks for taking the time to talk with us about your writing and research. Sure. Thanks for your invitation. It's nice to talk to you again. Last time we spoke, you had recently published Capital and Ideology. In that book, you expanded the reach of capital in the 21st century and focused on the role of politics and ideology as key determinants of a society's level of structural inequality. You open it arguing every human society must justify its inequalities unless reasons for them are found. The whole political and social edifice stands in danger of collapse. Your new book, A Brief History of Equality, draws on both of these earlier works synthesizing insights into a more concise narrative maintaining the same optimistic and resolute tone by acknowledging the longer-term trend toward greater social economic and political equality since the end of the 18th century pointing out its limited scope given the unjustified levels as you put it with regard to status property power income and gender among other things and that these are usually faced by individuals in combination. So let's get into your latest book. You argue that the struggle for increasing levels of equality requires historical understanding, a collective learning, as you call it, and requiring the institutions involved to become more equitable. Can you help better set the context for listeners why a process of collective learning is needed, and explain the factors undermining the key process as as you open your latest book. Sure. So first of all, let, let me say, so
1: this, this new book, A Brief History of Equality, is indeed a lot shorter than the, the previous two. And, uh, you know, I think it, it's important because, you know, especially the last one, Capital and Ideology, Yes, as you said, you know, I I expanded the scope in many directions, but maybe I expanded it so much that that many people maybe got lost in some of the arguments. So if so, for people who don't have, you know, who have many other things to do and don't have enough time to get into such a long book, you know, this brief history of equality is much more accessible you know it's like 200 250 pages and and also you know by 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 being more concise i think it also forced me to be sort of clearer about my main argument and to stress you know as you say, this optimistic uh, dimension in my research so you know the the main the main idea really of this new book is to stress the fact that Over the past two centuries, two centuries and a half, you know, beginning at the end of the 18th century, in particular with the French and U.S. revolution to some extent, there has been a movement toward more equality. And this movement toward more uh, equality is not something that has happened uh, just like that. You know, it came out of political mobilization. It came out of Institutional transformation, as you just said, it starts. Uh, uh, you know, to to it's not something that that has been like this forever. You know, since Neolithic times. You know, it, it's it's really grounded in history and in particular in specific uh, revolutionary events. So to be very clear. You know, it starts in particular with the end of uh, aristocratic uh, privileges uh, that you have uh, uh, in particular during the French Revolution, and it starts also with the slave revolt uh, in Saint-Domingue in 1791, which is Sort of the beginning of the end of slave and and colonial uh, societies. Now, these two movements, you know, the the end of aristocratic societies and societies based on privileges on the one hand and uh, the end of slave and colonial societies on the other hand, is, of course, a very long run process, you know, which continue in the 19th century with the, uh, with the rise of social movement and, and labor movement and trade union and, and uh, abolition of slavery continues in the 20th century with uh, male and then female suffrage, uh, social security, progressive taxation, independence, uh, Wars, uh, the end of apartheid, the, the civil rights movement in the U.S., and continues today with uh, Me Too, with Black Lives Matter, with with all sorts of social struggles, which which have been absolutely critical in this evolution. So the you know the balance of power and social struggles have been. Absolutely critical, but at the same time, coming to the institutional side, the balance of power and and you know the, the social mobilization is absolutely necessary, but it's not mm-hmm. sufficient in itself to deliver you know better institutions. And so here the main point is to stress, uh, okay, you know it's easy to. Sort of criticize, of course, the institutions that are in place uh, that were often uh, uh, set up by the various uh, dominant groups and elite groups. Uh, now it's it's more complicated to replace them with better institutions. You know, I mean, this is possible, of course, and and this is what has been going on over the past two centuries. But you know, sometimes there are some setbacks. You know, so Soviet type communism, of course, is the, is the biggest uh, uh, setback uh, of all, uh, and and we need to be very careful about uh, the way we organize political institution, uh, economic institution, fiscal institution, educational institution. And, you know, the bottom line is that there's there's a lot to learn from history. There's a lot to learn from every uh, national trajectory, including, you know, in the limitation of, of what we've achieved. So, you know, we, you know, today's, societies uh, you know in particular in rich western countries uh, may look a lot more democratic than what they were in the 18th century uh, uh, you know in ancient regime society aristocratic societies but you know they are still uh, much less democratic today societies are still much less democratic than they should be so for instance you know the, the power of money uh, in politics, in political finance, in in, uh, in, uh, in uh, you know influencing the uh, political process, the media, think tank, you know, is still very extreme and has little to do with what a democratic ideal uh, should look like, in my view. And you know, I think you know one day. In the future, when we look at the current way we organize democracy, uh, you know, maybe we will look at it uh, uh, a little bit in the same way as today we look at the you know 19th century uh, democratic system, where voting rights uh, were uh, explicitly uh, determined by uh, how much you own and and how much tax you pay, and and we we're still you know the power of money in, in Political institution uh, uh, is, is still very strong, and, and you know this is just an example. If we think of mm. international uh, inequality, uh, racial discrimination, you know, we're still we okay. We've made progress as compared to uh, 18th, 19th century, but you know, we're still very, very far from where where we might want to to get. So I I really stress that you know this process of uh, institutional transformation is, uh, is, you know, has started a long time ago, has, has gone very far, but, you know, needs to go much, much further. And on all these issues, you know, how to organize electoral institution, uh, international uh, uh, democratic decision making for, uh, uh, to get to, to, to more fiscal justice, uh, fighting uh, racial discrimination without uh, uh uh rigidifying individual identities you know all of these are complex issues on which you know we need to think a lot about uh, national experiences we need to have this process of collective uh, deliberation collective learning about uh, uh, equitable institution so the balance of power is very important but you know it's not it's not enough and, and we also need to think hard again and again about the, the society in which we want to live, the kind of economic system uh, and political systems that we want in the long run. You know, that's basically the, the main message of the, of the book and of my research, is that we need to open up again, uh, you know, the discussion about, about you know, The the sort of the big picture of what kind of economic, political and social system we want in the very long run, you know, in the continuation of some of the major transformations that have already been happening in the past two centuries.
0: Uh, You write about a pair of symmetrical pitfalls that must be avoided. One concerns neglecting struggles and power relationships, as you mentioned, and their role in the history of equality. And the other in sanctifying and neglecting the importance of political and institutional outcomes, along with the role of ideas and ideologies in their elaboration. Can you unpack some of your thinking there?
1: Well, you know, if we take the, the example of how, uh, you know, how you, you decide uh, about, uh, you know, collective uh, system of taxation at uh, the international level, or, you know, take take an example, which is, uh, you know, European level, which in a way, you know, is one of the region in the world where, you know, after centuries of war and self-destruction, you know, countries have started to design something like a democratic federation now the problem is that this democratic federation so far you know has been unable to have a majority rule decision making to decide upon a common tax system or social system and it's a Federation, you know, that is mostly uh, uh, based on uh, free circulation of goods, services, uh, capital. And in the end, you know, that is working uh, mostly, you know, to the benefit of the most mobile uh, uh, economic actors. And, you know, this has very concrete consequences is that, you know, whenever you have a referendum about uh, European integration, uh, you know, the lowest uh, economic group or the lowest income or education group tend to vote against you. You know, this is what we've seen with Brexit, but this is also what we see when we have a referendum either in France or in Denmark or, you know, everywhere where there's been a referendum in European countries. So what this means is that we need to invent, uh, in my view, you know, a, a sort of new form of democratic federalism where we have some form of transnational assemblies that can decide upon a common taxation and the most powerful economic actors including multinationals high wealth individuals high income individuals now you can see how complex this is because at the same time you certainly don't want to have all tax power or all you know decision making power you know at this uh, grand uh, federal european level let alone you know grand uh, world level so you you want cooperation and you want common decision making for certain decisions, so typically taxation of the most powerful global economic actors, which can only be taxed properly at a, at a global level, you know, at least a European level, and ideally at a, at a global level. But uh, for all sorts of more local tax decision or budgetary decision, in fact, maybe you want. The opposite. You want even more decentralization than what we have today. You want local, local, democratic uh, bodies to discuss. And so, you know, I'm trying to articulate uh, an institutional setup of how to organize democratic decision making, so that you can have transnational assembly for certain decisions, and you know, much more local assemblies for other decisions. But uh, as you as you can see, you know, it would be ridiculous to say that we know how to do that and that, you know, we just need to follow, you know, the roadmap and, you know, a lot has yet to be invented. Now, you know, I think this this can be invented. You know, I think this process of learning about the right institution has also been a process of expanding the scope of democracy and, and the scope of political integration, uh, you know, the development of modern uh, mm-hmm. nation states and then modern uh, international relations. Sometimes, you know, this has led to wars and disasters, but in the long run, by and large, you know, this is a process that has uh, allowed to develop the welfare state, uh, public infrastructure, and that has been uh, at the at the center of the movement toward both more equality and more prosperity. So, you know, I think we, we can, we should, and, and we will continue in this direction. But, you know, as you can see with this example of democratic uh, federalism uh, over taxation and tax justice, you know, it, it requires some, some serious discussion, you know, otherwise, you know, there's a risk. Uh, you know, what, what is the risk today? I think, you know, one of the main risks today is that the disappointment over uh, neoliberalism, so, so to speak, uh, uh, leads the way towards some form of neo-nationalism, which is a little bit what we've seen with Trump and Brexit. You know, in a way, this is a much easier route to follow than uh, the kind of sophisticated, uh, you know, learning from history and and the kind of democratic uh, uh, federalism and democratic uh, socialism and redistribution of wealth that I am uh, proposing. But in the end, you know, neo-nationalism is not going to solve the big problem we have to solve. It's not going to solve uh, our environmental uh, challenges. It's not going to solve our problem with inequality and our social problems. So, you know, I think we will have to continue this movement toward uh, more equality. And this will require indeed a, a lot of, you know, collective deliberation, collective learning, institutional Imagination. Just to take mm-hmm. another example, you know, I gave the example of uh, how you take federal, uh, you know, decision over, over taxation. You know, how do you address issues of reparation for past, uh, you know, colonial crimes? Or, you know, if we take the example, which I like to stress, uh, which is the fact that, uh, you know, Saint Domingue had to pay to France, you know, its former colonial master, a huge tribute in order to compensate uh, former French slave owners for their their loss of property when when Saint-Domingue became free and stopped to be the property of of French uh, uh, slave owners. You know, I, th- I think we, in this example we need to think explicitly about uh, reparation, uh, you know, transfer uh, from from the French state to to IT. Now, is it simple to agree about the right number? You know, I make some concrete proposal about this. You know, do I believe that this will be simple? You know, to to get everybody to agree about the right number and the right uh, democratic procedure to organize this reparation. Of course not. You know, is it, is it simple, more generally, to to find you know the right balance uh, between you know country uh, independence and international justice? Is it simple to uh, find the right way to to reduce discrimination both within countries at an international level without rigidifying uh, individual identities? You know, all of these are complicated issues on which, you know, I think we can make progress, but we really have to look case by case, uh, you know, what are the best uh, institutional uh, devices and and mechanism uh, that can actually solve the problem we need to solve.
0: Uh, Yeah, no, the deliberation issue is a key thing. This idea, though, uh, as you have uh, stressed in your book, uh, citizens need to take a more active role in this whole uh, process. You know, there's a Keynes quote you, you don't hear very often these days that practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influence are, are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. Um, I mentioned this thinking of Hayek's uh, The Mirage of Social Justice, in which he states that the concept of social justice uh, within an economic order based on the market has no meaning or content uh whatever. There are many variations on this theme across uh political systems, regions and, and nation states. To to what extent do you think these forces are successful in, in undermining or delegitimizing your call for rethinking justice on, on a transnational scale?
1: You know what makes me optimistic in the end is is the study of everything we have achieved already in the past. You know, I, let, let me stress that you know the, the economic and political system we have today. You know, in terms of equality, is so much better than what we had. You know, one century ago. You know, if mm. you compare the situation in 1910 uh, with the situation in, in 2020, you know, you look at which countries in the world, you know, they now have very developed, uh, you know, public health system, public education system, public infrastructure, Uh, you know, progressive taxation in the 20th century was a great success. You know, it's really important to remember that the United States, in particular, when they were at the highest level of their uh, prosperity uh, uh, with respect to the rest of the world uh, in the middle of the 20th century, this was a country where you know top income tax rate and top inheritance tax rate were 80 percent 90 percent it was like this for half a century this was not a problem for economic prosperity simply because you know income gaps of one to 100 or one to 200 are simply not useful in terms of economic innovation i'm not saying we want complete equality but you know i think you can discuss should it be 1 to 5 1 to 10 1 to 20 I tend to think 1 to 5 uh, 1 to 10 is enough but in any case 1 to 100 or 1 to 200 you know if you compare different historical period It's clear that this is not necessary, and what's what's really key for economic prosperity is more investment in education and relatively egalitarian investment in education. And this is what made the US uh, so productive in the middle of the 20th century as compared to to Western Europe or Japan. Uh, This is because, you know, in the 1950s, you had uh, almost 90 percent of a generation going to high school while at the time it was only 20 or 30% of a generation in Germany, France or or Japan. So, you know, the big lesson from history is that, you know, we've gone already a long way toward more equality, and this has been, uh, you know, part of the modernization process that has also brought uh, more uh, prosperity. This is true for education. This is true for workers' rights. You know, if you take some of the most successful countries in in Europe you know including Sweden or Germany uh, these are countries where workers uh, elected representatives have up to 50% of voting rights in the board of large corporation you know which means that if in addition uh, they have 10% or 20% of the, of the capital stock of the company then they will have actually a, an absolute majority of the vote even uh, with respect to a shareholder who would have eighty or ninety percent of the capital stock of the company, and it's been like that since the 1950s. And uh, you know, this was actually a very good way to involve uh, workers in the long-run uh, strategy of the company, and this has contributed again to to prosperity. So, you know, what makes me optimistic is that you know this process, you know, it's it's not just a sort of theoretical hope that you know equality could work. This is Based on history, you know this has worked uh, in in the past, and you know we need to look at the future prospects, you know, on, on the basis of this uh, of this achievement, and you know if you do that. You know, I think this will, um, you know, this will make, uh, this will make you more optimistic, you know, which doesn't mean I know exactly, you know, the trajectory and the path we need to follow in the, in the future, but at least, uh, you know, this gives us a, a, a strong, a strong guide. Coming back just to what you mentioned about Ayek, you know, mm. he was he wrote at a time where, you know, I think he was sincere, you know, when he wrote about the road uh, to serfdom and, you know, he was uh, in 1944 and he was basically telling uh, explicitly to his British uh, and Swedish uh, friends, uh, you know, be careful with the Labour Party in Britain, be careful with the Social Democratic Party in Sweden, you know, they talk about fiscal justice, but they will get to uh, totalitarian nightmares, they will become, uh, uh, you know, dictator dictatorial uh, political movement, uh, this will lead to totalitarianism, okay, you know, he was writing in 1944, maybe he was sincere, he was probably sincere, but, you know, this is someone who in the 1970s uh, uh, supported the, the Pinochet military dictatorship, you know, I think, you know, at the end of the day, the Labour Party in Britain, the Social Democratic Party in Sweden, you know, they were not perfect, of course, but they were, you know, they they, they developed a system that was certainly not uh, totalitarian, and that was a great success, both in terms of equality, in terms of democracy, and, you know, I don't know what Ayeq, uh, you know, will write today, you know, the basis of the of the historical evidence, but you know, I think everybody uh, looking at this historical evidence again should agree that we can through democratic deliberation through the respect of all you know individual rights you know build a notion of social justice and fiscal justice which is perfectly uh, working and and is a key part of the process uh, uh, getting us to more prosperity and you know the very sort of conservative attitude saying oh you know we cannot even think about social and fiscal justice because uh, if we start such a discussion, this will never end and, you know, we will end up in a totalitarian nightmare. You know, I think this set of belief has been somehow, you know, just defeated by um, historical, uh, historical evidence, we, which doesn't mean, you know, again, it doesn't mean it's simple. To have this democratic deliberation to decide. But, you know, I think this is the best we can do. This is the best option we have is to trust, you know, democratic uh, deliberation to get to a, a, you know, set of institution and to a more, uh, you know, equitable and balanced distribution of power and distribution of wealth than uh, what we have today. Otherwise, we will not be able let me stress that, you know, to to fight uh, our biggest uh, challenges. So if you think of global warming, you know, there's so much inequality uh, between countries in terms of carbon emission, but also within countries. Yeah, you know, that if you don't reduce inequality drastically, you will you never make people agree about the necessary uh, transformation in the energy regime and in their way of life, etc. You know, you, we we have published some some new data in the World Inequality Database showing that, you know, if you look at the, the bottom fifty percent individuals in in uh, Europe or in uh, or even in the U.S., their carbon emission as of now, you know, is you know in Europe it will be about between four and five tons per capita. Carbon uh, uh, emission equivalent for the bottom 50% individual, it it needs to go down. You know, it will be better to have two or three tons, but it's almost already on target with the objective for the next uh, 20 or 30 years. The problem is that the top 10% individual have an emission of 30 tons uh, per year, and, and top one percent individual have a carbon emission of 70 tons. And you know, there's no way, you know, you will if you come with a solution like, you know, general increase in energy prices or general increase in proportional carbon tax in order to reduce everybody's carbon emission in the same proportion, you know, this is not going to work. You know, people in the bottom 50% will not accept that. And you will have some kind of gigantic uh, yellow vest movement, uh, you know, everywhere where if you try to do that kind of thing. So, I, you know, I, I think, you know, People in the bottom 50% will tell you, look, you first need to reduce the carbon emission of the people who emit, you know, uh, 30 tons or 70 tons or 200 tons per capita. And and then, you know, maybe I right. would also change some of my uh, way of life and, and energy uh, regime and consumption regime. But, but if you... If you don't start by reducing what people are, are polluting at the, at the top, you know, that's just not going to, to work. So I, you know, I think in the future, yeah. this is likely to be a very important uh, political force that will, that will make, uh, you know, popular attitudes toward globalization, towards the economic system and towards inequality change uh, possibly pretty fast and pretty drastically as uh, climate uh, catastrophes uh, become more and more apparent.
0: you lay it out pretty clearly, I think, in the book, the global North makes up what fifteen percent of the world's population, but as you were just saying, the per capita amount of carbon emissions, it's almost as lopsided as the same kind of thinking with regard to, say, CEO salaries say, the 1960, which m- might have been 20 to one to the guy on, on the shop floor versus what 1990 numbers become two or 300 times in terms of the numbers. And in terms of just the overall fairness that most anybody, I think, looking at it, uh, in, in, especially in, in the way that you lay the argument out, hey, we, we, we can go back to our colonial legacy of slavery and uh, make the case for reparations. For instance, uh, George Packer, who, who writes quite a bit in in The Atlantic, had kind of a 4th of July question for an article. And his article was how America fractured into to four parts. It read people in the United States no longer agree on the nation's purpose, values, history, or meaning? Is reconciliation possible? If there is a future for democracy, should it not be made evident by uh, building confidence in a, as you say, a common standard of deliberation that is in turn reflective of at least some shared values? Um, in particular, should it not start with coming to terms with our national legacy of slavery? And, and I say that as an American, and I know France has the same issue, our national legacies of slavery and racial injustice. Definitely. You know, I, I think this will take time,
1: but at the end of the day if we don't move in this direction it's going to be very difficult uh, to to build a common a common uh, future because you know it will take time look it it always takes time if you look at reparation you know to take another example which in a way is, is less uh, less spectacular but which was important at the time mm-hmm. You know, it took uh, more than four decades for the U.S. Congress to finally accept in 1988 to vote a reparation for the uh, Japanese-Americans that were uh, interned during World War II. And, you know, during many decades, uh, the idea was, no, we cannot do that. It's going to be so complicated to decide about a reparation. You know, of course, what we did was wrong, but it's so complicated to decide about the reparation, so we should just not do anything. And in the end... You know the viewpoint that well actually we should do something was you know very very important and you know I I, I think uh, you know the same as to as to happen with uh, uh, reparation uh, with respect to uh, you know the slavery uh, in the in the United States or you know Saint Domingue in the case of France or if you look at you know uh, places like uh, Guadeloupe or Martinique or Réunion which are the former slave islands of France you know I think there are solutions in terms of land reform you know because it In these places, you still have very concentrated land property where. Basically the descendants of the slaves still don't own anything. And sometimes you know the descendants of slave owners still own a uh, you know a huge fraction of the of the place, partly because at the end of slavery there was actually compensation, not for the slaves, but for the slave owners to compensate them for their loss of property. And you know, if if you tell people, okay, this is too late, we cannot do anything about that, and at the same time you do you still do today some reparation for uh, Expropriation, which took place during World War Two and World War One, uh, in particular with respect to, to Jewish uh, property uh, uh, in, in Europe, which you know, I, I think we, we, it's good that we still do something about that. But then, if you tell uh, you know descendants of, of of slaves or descendants of uh, uh, people who suffered explicit racial discrimination up until the 1950s, 1960s, well, you know, for you this is too late. You put yourself in a complicated situation because you put yourself in a situation where you are not really building some common norm of justice, but you are making, you know, you are treating different injustices in a, in a way that is so grossly uh, inconsistent that, that you are actually building a future Conflict. You are contributing to future conflict. So we need to find a way to address all of these past injustices, and at the same time, of course, we also need to turn to the future and to build universal policies uh, of redistribution. So, for instance, you know, when I propose to have redistribution of inheritance, so that everybody at age twenty-five has a minimum inheritance of, you know, say one hundred twenty thousand euros, like what I propose in France or Europe. You know, this should be really for everybody at age 25, you know, whether your ancestors were slaves or slave owners or whatever. So we, we need to do both at the same time. You need to have specific reparation in some cases and universal. Uh, redistributive schemes, uh, or universal healthcare or, you know, universal free education on the other hand. And, you know, this is this articulation between, you know, specific reparation for, for specific injustices that happened in the past and universal redistribution and, and universal norms of justice. This is this articulation that we, that we need to,
0: to put together. Hey, your book has defended the possibility of a, democratic and federal socialism, decentralizing and participative based on extension of the welfare state and progressive taxation. Uh, But there's much more to your argument for readers to consider, including the war between capitalisms and the battle between socialisms, as you put it. Can you end tonight by sharing your thoughts about the essential role of the monetary and financial system, regardless of the economic model we choose and why, as uh, you wrote in, in your book, nearly everything remains to be invented. And as you uh, mentioned here tonight,
1: you know, I, I think Western countries should and and, and in the future hopefully will continue, you know, the movement towards the welfare state, towards more equality, towards some form of democratic socialism, you know, by which I mean uh, more workers' rights in corporations. You know, the workers already have up to 50% of voting rights in the biggest corporation in countries like Germany or Sweden. I think this should be extended to all countries, and, and we should even have a cap on, you know, how much a single shareholder can have uh, in terms of voting rights in a large corporation, say no more than 10%. So, you know, that's typically in the continuation of some of the movement toward more uh, workers' rights that we've seen in the past and which I has worked very well. Uh, You know, this also involves going uh, further in, in the direction of permanent redistribution of income and wealth, which, you know, again, you know, has been successful in the past. And At the international level, you know, I think what's very important is to, is to build uh, an economic system and a tax system, which gives, you know, every country, in particular countries in the South that are being hit so badly uh, by, by the, by the climate crisis coming from the carbon emission uh, of the North. uh, We, you know, need to build an economic tax system that gives these countries a chance to develop. And if we don't do that, Then, you know, I think uh, climate crisis, migration crisis uh, 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 will be there to remind us that, you know, the the need for equality at the global level is is really not only a moral imperative, but also an economic imperative. And if we don't do that, you know, other countries, you know, in particular China, you know, will offer alternative models, you know, based on very uh, sort of authoritarian uh, state socialism, uh, you know, something that, you know, this has nothing to do with the kind of decentralized uh, democratic uh, uh, participatory socialism I have in mind. But, you know, if Western countries don't go in the direction of more democratic participatory socialism and more equality. You know, there's a risk. China will uh, exploit, uh, you know, the the anger uh, against uh, uh, former uh, colonial powers uh, in order to promote another kind of development model. And, you know, they're already doing that to a large extent. But, you know, I think this will be, or at least this should be, another reason with climate challenges for for the West to move in the direction of equality. once again.
0: Thanks again to Tomal Piketty for sharing his thoughts with us. Listeners not familiar with his books or research on inequality and political economy now have a concise articulation of the professor's broader vision. We didn't have time to discuss all the important points in the new book, of course. Ten well-written and researched chapters in A Brief History of Equality, published this month by Harvard University Press, translated by Stephen Rendell.